invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Let's hear from Jesus today, shall we? Let's learn about Jesus today. Do you know we're, we're returning to our series in Luke's Gospel? And we're in chapter 7. We've covered uh, quite a bit of ground in the last couple of months. A little bit of ground. But we've gotten to see a good picture of Jesus' life in his early ministry. And I just want to, let's kind of go back and just kind of sketch a little bit of what Jesus has done. Let's start with, in Luke chapter 4. And if you would, have your eyes on the text too. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Um, and we could actually, I don't know if we have any Bibles on the back table. Um, lean over, find somebody who does, and then uh, look on the scripture. Uh, we have the opportunity to have our eyes to be able to see God's word. And so I want us to do this. Um, so we have Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, where he quotes back God's word to the tempter, to Satan. And then Jesus goes, uh, he, he begins, he preaches a sermon in Luke chapter 4, where he quotes from Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to, and he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then Jesus went about uh, kind of a, a healing slash teaching ministry. And I want to kind of look at some of the things that he had done. In chapter 4, and verse 31, you have Jesus healing a man uh, with a demon. See that in chapter 4, verse 31. You have Jesus healing, um, healing the sick in verse 38, chapter 4, 38. As a matter of fact, it's actually Peter, his disciple's mother-in-law. He heals, uh, he heals the sick. In chapter 5, you have, in verse 12, Jesus uh, cleansing a leper. A leper comes to him with a skin condition, and Jesus cleanses him. Immediately after that, in verse 17, you have Jesus healing a paralytic. Chapter 6, verse 6, you have a man coming with a withered hand on the Sabbath and asking, and Jesus heals the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 7, you have the Roman centurion coming to Jesus. Well, actually, he sends, uh, he sends representatives to come to Jesus and ask him to heal his servant who was about to die. And Jesus goes, you remember this story, Jesus is on his way to go and they send other services. No, 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 wait. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word. I know how this authority thing works. I know who your superior officer is. It's God himself. God the Father. I know who you are. Just say the word. And it says at that very hour, that man was healed. So you have this work of Jesus healing, cleansing, doing miracles, even rescuing somebody who was about to die. And now you have the granddaddy of them all that happens in chapter 7, verse, verses 11 through 17. I want to look at this. We'll read this quickly, and then we'll get to our main text this morning, which will be in Luke chapter 7, verses 18. So Luke 7, verses 11 says, Soon afterward, he, that is Jesus, went to a town called Nain. Nain is near uh, where Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. 
And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the beer. This is the, the thing that they would carry the body on. And the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother and fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. So here Jesus is performing miracles he's healing those who are sick and he's rescuing those from about to die and now he does the granddaddy of them all this is kind of the pinnacle of jesus's work up to this point he takes somebody who has died and he brought him back to life now enter on the heels of that we enter enters john the baptist john the baptist appears in verse 18 now, the disciples of John reported all of these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples, sent them to the Lord. Now, let's re go back and review. Let's sketch through the life of John. Remember John's early life. John actually appears very prominently in Luke's gospel. Sometimes I think we overlook that. We get to Jesus and we, we forget to see how important John is. Because remember how Luke begins his gospel? He's talking to Theophilus and he says, I, I want to uh, write all of these things, this orderly account, to give you certainty about what you've been taught about Jesus. And then he jumps in and he goes, and an angel comes to Joseph? Jesus? No. The angel comes to Zechariah to speak about John's birth. That's the first event, first narrative we have is an angel coming to announce John's birth. Interesting, right? And then you have the angel coming to Mary to announce to Mary about uh, Mary's birth of Jesus. So the very first announcement was the announcement of John. And then we have Mary who goes to Elizabeth, her cousin, which is uh, John's mother. And what happens when Mary and Elizabeth, who are both with child, show up in the same room, John starts doing somersaults in Mary's womb, right? And, you know, uh, uh, or excuse me, Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth is like, whoa, you're the mother of my Lord. So you get this sense that, like, John recognizes Jesus while they're both in utero. <laughs> That's a pretty uh, amazing thing. And then now you have this, the birth story of Jesus. No, you have the birth story of John again. Luke goes into great detail to, to, to convey Hey, there was an, an angel announcement about John, just as there was about Jesus. And there was a, a, a birth narrative of John, just as there was about Jesus. And then we have the story of Jesus' birth that we celebrated on Christmas morning. So John is pretty important. Okay. Then we have John's ministry. It says that the word of the Lord came to John and then he went out into the wilderness and he started to proclaim that word. And that was repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And so he went about preaching and then he went about baptizing. Uh, 
for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sins in the Jordan River. And then John tells us that when Jesus comes out to the wilderness, John, the first thing he says to Jesus is, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John recognizes Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. So John is pretty important. But right now, at this point in John's, excuse me, this point in Jesus' ministry, John, because of his preaching, because of his calling people to repent of sin, has been thrown into jail by uh, Herod. And he's in prison. And he's awaiting death. As a matter of fact, he's about to die very soon. In the setting of today's passage. And so John comes to Jesus, and John has doubts. John, who recognized Jesus right away as being the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the John whose announcement the angels announced just like it announced Jesus's, this John who recognizes Jesus in utero, this John is struggling with Jesus' identity. And he isn't quite... Jesus isn't quite doing what John expects him to do. Look at what he says. And calling two of his disciples, this is verse 19, and calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, that is to Jesus, saying, are you the one... Who is to come. The one who is to come. This is the, the Messiah. The servant of the Lord. That the Old Testament kept. Uh, the Old Testament prophets would say. There's coming a day. When the servant of the Lord is going to come. And John who was commissioned. To prepare the way of the Lord. Was. Was. Uh, thinking this is, this is who Jesus was. But now he starts to have doubts. And he says are you. Are you the one. Because I really thought you were. Or shall we look for another? Meaning, you know, am I really not the preparer of the, the making the way for the Lord to come? And this is an important point that, he, that Luke is made, making here because he actually writes the question down twice. It happens in verse 19 and then it happens again in verse 20. Luke records for us. Them going to Jesus and then them quoting the same thing verbatim again. And they said, John, the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? We could say this, even the greatest, even the greatest of the faithful can have their doubts. Even the greatest of the faithful can have their doubts. And John is the greatest. This is what Jesus uh, says to the crowds immediately after this. Look at what it says in verse 24. And John's messengers had gone. So Jesus had answered him. John's messengers had gone. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Apparently they'd all gone to see John's ministry out in the Jordan River. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Somebody kind of flimsy and uncertain? The implication is the answer is no. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? 
This is, this is actually the term that's used for uh, a male person who would dress like a woman in order to attract other men. Like, is, is that what you went to see? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing, they live in luxury and in king's courts. What did you go out to see? And then Jesus answered him. He said, well, first he asked the question, a prophet? He goes, yes, more than a prophet. This is a, he of whom it is written, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is affirming that John's ministry was the one to prepare the way for the coming one. And he's saying here, the last of the prophets before the Christ was John. And then he adds this. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So John's the greatest. But now John is struggling with doubt. And it's understandable to... It's, it's easy to see why, right? John... Jesus is doing miracles. He's healing. He's cleansing lepers. And John is in jail. Jesus is healing. And John is actually in chains. Jesus has raised a man from the dead. And John is about to die. And John maybe doesn't sense that, that he's getting out of this. Even the greatest of the faithful can have their doubts. So I have a couple of questions this morning for us. Do you struggle? Do you struggle with doubts with Jesus? Do you sometimes have a hard time coming to terms with who he is? Are you sometimes perplexed about Jesus? Maybe even you're downright disappointed in Jesus, if we were honest. Maybe you're disappointed in Jesus because he doesn't act as you would expect him to. Or he doesn't do what you want him to do. I can picture John saying something like this in this question. Uh, Jesus, I thought you were going to get me out of here. I thought you were going to judge these Romans. I thought you were going to... I thought you were going to usher in your kingdom. John had said one point about Jesus, the coming one, who says he, he's, he's got the winnowing fork in his hand. He's going to, you know, he's going to separate the, the wheat from the chaff, and he's going to burn that up. He's going to come and make all things right. And John is not experiencing that. So have you ever thought, Jesus, why don't you fix all my problems? Jesus, I thought you were actually going to... Heal my child. Jesus, I thought. I thought you were going to actually mend my marriage. God, Jesus, I thought you were going to salvage my career. Have you ever had Jesus not live up to your expectations? And to do things in your time frame. And then does this create doubt? In your heart? If so, this passage is telling us so did John, who is greater than all of those born of women. 
So even the greatest of the faithful can have their doubts. But, but now let's, let's, let's look at what Jesus does in response to this. Even the greatest of the faithful can have their doubts. But Jesus is gentle. Jesus is gentle with the humble who have doubts and questions. I got to give John some credit, at least when he has questions about Jesus, he goes to Jesus. He brings those questions to Jesus. Actually, in this case, because he's in prison, he sends two people to go and ask him the questions. But look at what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't rebuke John. He doesn't criticize John for his lack of faith. He doesn't chastise him. He doesn't say, oh, you of little faith, John, why don't you, why don't you two go back to say to John, oh, you of little faith, just kind of, no. Jesus does that sometimes with his disciples, but he doesn't do that with John. Look at what it says in verse 21 and 22. Luke gives us a little background, a little context of what's going on in verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them. And Jesus says to them, go and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. Go and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. Jesus helps the doubting by pointing back to himself and his works. Jesus helps the doubting by pointing back to himself and his works. And notice some of the things that Jesus then also says here, too. Go and tell what you, John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. If you look at verse 21 and 22 together, that's quite a list of things that's happening there. First, you have the healing of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. The blind are bestowed with sight. And all of these things we've seen happen in Luke's gospel. As we trace through in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we've seen the lame walk, the, the lepers cleansed. We've seen the deaf here. We've seen the dead raised up and the poor have preached good news, preached to them. We saw that this was part of Jesus' mission, what he says, when he was at the synagogue and he was asked to stand up and speak. And he gave the sermon where he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So all of these things, the Old Testament prophets Hundreds of years earlier had said, when you see these things happen, you will know that the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, the deliverer, the rescuer, the savior, you will know he has come. When you see all of those things happening. And Luke is recording all of these things for us to say, this is, he's the one, he's the one, he's the one. Indeed, this is precisely what the, the crowds are starting to realize when Jesus had raised the young man up from the dead. Remember back up in verse 16 and 17, it says, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us. 
And God has visited his people. I think they're catching it. They're only scratching the surface because this is not just a great prophet. This is the prophet. This is the servant. This is the anointed one, the savior, the deliverer who has come. And so Jesus tells John's disciples gently and humbly, just go tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. He points back to himself and back to his works. What a helpful word for all of us who would struggle with doubts or struggling with Jesus not meeting up to our expectations when we understand the bigger picture of what it is he's come to do. Now notice what it says in verse 28. Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. We've read this already. And he continues. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's how Jesus ends his response to the crowd. Among those born of women, no one is greater than John. But the least in the kingdom is greater than he. Why does Jesus say this? Well, I think part of the reason is that John is the end of the Old Testament. He's the last Old Testament prophet. He has prepared the way for the, the Lord. And that is why he is so great, as Jesus says. But what Jesus is announcing to the crowd is that something new has happened. A new era has come. A new era has dawned. The kingdom of God is now here. It's at hand, he would say. The faithful in the Old Testament, listening to the prophets, heard that the coming one was coming. The, 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 the servant was going to come and he was going to do all these miraculous things. But now that promise has come. So I think what Jesus is saying here, every person, every person who trusts in Christ... And all of his work is part of God's kingdom. And this is better than anything that has happened before. Jesus was calling people to trust in him for salvation. Even, even with doubts. Jesus' work was more than just healing. And teaching. We see this cycle after cycle all through Luke's gospel so far. Jesus performs a, a, a healing or a miracle and then he starts to teach. And then he performs another couple of miracles and then he starts to teach. And the Old Testament prophets said, yes, the coming one will do all of those things. But there's something else that the coming one was going to do. And that is to suffer. To be sure, the, the Old Testament prophets would say that when, when the Messiah comes, these things, these signs, the, the, the lame will walk, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, all of those things will happen. And those will all be signs of his coming. But Jesus' purpose was to preach the good news, to forgive sin, to purchase salvation. 
And all of that is through suffering. As I think about this, this is you see Jesus fulfilling so many of the Old Testament prophets in one place, and I can't help but be drawn back to another passage in Isaiah that speaks to the suffering of the servant. And if you would, turn to Isaiah 52 and 53. Isaiah says in verse 7 of chapter 52, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. This is the very words that Jesus had just said. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness and publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, which is Jerusalem, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together. They sing for joy for eye to eye. They see the return of the Lord to Zion. This is He's talking about the day when the servant is going to come. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And then the Lord says through Isaiah about this servant, verse 13, how is it that God will comfort? How is it that he will redeem? He sends his servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. For surely he borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the servant was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. 
And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the servant. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins, the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the servant. Healings, yes. Helping the the, the lame to walk, yes. But he ultimately came to suffer. As Jesus reminds us in several places in his gospel, he says over to the disciples, you've got to know the Son of Man must suffer these things. Telling before his cross, the Son of Man must suffer. And even after he was crucified and he was buried and he was raised on the next day, he comes to his disciples and he goes, don't you remember? I told you that the Son of Man must suffer. Those who see Jesus not just as a, a miracle worker or a moral teacher, but as a suffering Savior are greater than John. This is why Jesus adds at the end of uh, at the end of this word back to John's disciples as he sends them off. He says, go and see, go and tell them what you have seen and what you've heard. And then he ends in verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Who's not offended at a suffering servant. Before he comes into his glory, before he goes to make judgment, before his winnowing fork starts to throw the wheat and the chaff up in the air, before all of that happens, he suffers for us. So the least, you could say it this way, the least in the kingdom is blessed because they are not offended by a suffering Savior. And then Jesus goes on to explain a little bit about these these two two groups. He kind of makes a contrast between two groups. Between those who trust in Jesus, even with their their occasional doubts and questions, but who trust in Jesus, and then those who don't. Or those, as he says in verse 23, who are blessed because they are not offended. And the other, even though he doesn't use these words, are those who, who are cursed because they are offended. Verse 28, he says, I tell you, excuse me, um, verse 29. We have the crowd's reaction here. Now, when all the people heard this, what Jesus had just said about John, 
and the tax collectors too. Now the little alarm should be going off. T tax collectors was a picture of the worst kind of sinner. And the tax collectors, they, what did they do? Declared God just. And why? Having been baptized with the baptism of John. So, in other words, remember, John came repenting, calling for repentance, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And then Jesus comes and he continues on. He says the exact same message. Repent. Humble yourselves. Repent. Be baptized. And this is what this part of the crowd did. And so they're rejoicing at this because they're saying what, G what John's ministry was seeking to accomplish is true. And Jesus affirms it. Jesus is the one who is to come. And they heard John's message and they repented and they confessed of their sins. Those are who are blessed by not being offended by Jesus. But there's another crowd. And then verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Remember when the crowd comes out to, to John in the wilderness and he's baptizing those and then the religious leaders and the lawyers and the scribes and the Pharisees and they come out and they're just standing by watching, you know, maybe with their arms crossed. What is this guy wearing camel hair and a belt and eating locusts and honey? Maybe he was perhaps criticizing the way they were baptized. Well, that's not how you baptize. You got to use a different kind of water than that. No. At the source of all of this was, I don't. I reject their message. And so what John says to him, remember, you brood of vipers. <laughs> who who warned you to come out here? Your lives are all just fine, right? You have no need of repentance, right? the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers who are there. And notice what they don't say. They don't declare God as just for this action. They're not affirming Jesus in his work and what he's doing. And it says these words, it just kind of, uh, it almost gave me a little bit of tingle down my spine. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves. The purpose of God. Big thing. And a purpose of God for them, for us. And they said, nope, reject it. Chilling. Why? No baptism. No repentance. They were righteous. They had cleaned up their act. They had, uh, they had established a righteousness of their own, their way. Our way, our customs, our plans, our way of being right with God. Which has the, which is the terrible um, inoculating effect of preventing the thing that does bring us to God. And that's repentance. A humble heart. So Jesus says, that's it. And Jesus starts to describe this group a little bit more in verse 31 through 35. 
To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? This generation being the second half of that group. What are they like? They're like ch children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dir dirge and you did not weep. For John came, John the Baptist has come uh, eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he's a demon. But the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. These, you can't do anything right. Know these people? You can't do anything. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This little episode is a great reminder for us. That even the greatest of Christians, the most faithful of Christians can have their doubts about Jesus. But it usually comes because of our expectations. We're expecting something different than what he's purposed to do. John experiences that. He's in jail. Jesus, you're not doing what I asked you, what I thought you were going to do. But Jesus is gentle and humble with those who have the questions and have their doubts. And Jesus helps those with doubting and questioning by pointing back to him and his work. And his work is to be the suffering servant. If you suffer now, like John is suffering and it causes doubts and questions. Remember that the suffering servant suffered for that. And for us, this is different than what John is, what he's saying here. If Jesus were to say these words, go and tell all that you've seen and heard. For us, on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, this is everything up to the cross and the resurrection and the glorification. His works include that, even the things that John wasn't able to see. Jesus points us back to his works and his work on the cross. Jesus says, come, come look to me, come look at my works, humble yourself, Just repent, confess, believe, come, come to me. Don't be offended at me. Don't stumble over my suffering. And if you do, you will be in my kingdom. The least of which is greater than anything that's come before. The least in the kingdom who, uh, those who, despite their doubts and their questions, they look to the work of Jesus and repent. Because they're not offended by a suffering Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful for your word and how you, the power that it has to speak to us even today. God, we identify with John, not, in, not so much in his greatness or that the word of the Lord came to him and that he did marvelous things for you or that, that we are in any way preparers of the way of Jesus that's not what we identify with. We identify with the, 
the times when we struggle to understand when you Jesus don't you don't meet our expectations and our timeline but God thank you that that Jesus gently reminds us to look to him Father we thank you that you point us back to Christ and his work on the cross to suffer for us. And God, we come with, with our struggles and our questions, wondering what it is, that the plan that you would have for us in the details of our lives. And we know and we trust that you do. But sometimes it causes questions. But God, help us to not, although we question your plan, help us to not reject your purpose for us. God, may we not reject the purpose of God for ourselves. God, thank you for dealing humbly and graciously and gently with us. God, help us to admit our weaknesses and our need for a suffering Savior. So that we are not offended by what Christ has done. It is no stumbling block for us. Because we know that he did that for us. And our salvation. Thank you for reminding us that this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people say, Amen. And Amen. Would you stand for a benediction this morning? <clears throat> Brothers and sisters of Redeemer Bible Church, and may the, the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go from this place. Amen.